Well, friends, we've basically just sung the sermon over the last about three songs there. We've sung about how glorious Christ is. We've sung that Christ has conquered death. And Ashley's just sung for us, it is not death to die. And that is our sermon this morning, basically, in a nutshell right there for you, of what we're going to look at this morning. Turn to John chapter 8. We're continuing our gospel through the journey of, through the gospel of John. And so if you're new to Gateway, we've been working through John very slowly. This is our 28th sermon in the gospel of John, and we're finishing John chapter 8 this morning. Now, good news, I'm going to try to do the entirety of chapter 9 next week in one sermon. So we'll see if we can't pick it up at least next week. We'll see if that's possible or not. As we come to John 8, we're coming to the end of a section of John. John chapters 5 through 8 were a whole block together of like one idea. Chapters 1 through 4 we looked at months ago was who Jesus is. We saw the foundation of who Christ is, that he's the eternal word, the eternal light. We see him coming to give us grace. We see what he did. And then chapters 5 through 8, it really began when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And all of a sudden now his popularity is not the cool guy to follow anymore. He's doing things that push against people's tradition and their beliefs and presuppositions about God. So in chapters 5 through 8, we see this growing opposition to Jesus. And it reaches kind of a climax today as we come to the end of chapter 8. And week after week, especially as we've been working through chapter 8 now for about four weeks, it's not been pretty watching the opposition to Jesus grow. But friends, in the midst of the opposition to Jesus, we're seeing how great Jesus is. It is magnifying his greatness. It's magnifying his glory and is continuing to show us true belief and to call us to believe as well. As you know, John wrote this gospel so that we might believe. So John 20, 31 is the main idea of the whole book. John told us why he wrote the gospel of John. And we'll put it up there on the screen for you, but I want us to say it together, okay? John 20, 31, say it with me. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, put it up on the screen. We'll do it with the words this time. We'll try one more time, okay? You ready? Here we go. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, we're going to get it. We're getting close. I think we're about to get it here on that. But that is why John wrote this gospel, is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Of God, And we'll see that again in today's text. As we come to the end of John 8, remember Jesus is carrying on a conversation. He's carrying on a conversation with these Jewish people who were not really fond of what he, who he is and what he's trying to do. And if you remember last week, he told them some things that were pretty hard. He told them last week, he said, you will die in your sins. He told them last week, you're not following the true father. You're following your father who is the devil. And so we saw that this true last week for anyone who's not been changed by Jesus. So realize today... The week has passed for us. This is the very next breath in that conversation after telling people you will die in your sins. This is where the conversation now continues. So as we get to John 8, we're going to start in verse 48 this morning. And as we read this text, I want you to listen for three things. First of all, listen for who Jesus is. We've just sung how glorious he is. Why is Jesus glorious? What do we see about who Jesus is in this text? Second of all, listen for how belief is described. Week after week, we keep talking about believing, believing, believing. Well, the word believe is not in this text, but the idea of believing is very much here. So listen for what believing is. And then finally, listen for the hope there is for those who believe. So who is Jesus? What is belief like? And what's the hope for those who truly believe? Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version. John chapter 8, we'll be starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never 
see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his words. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are you not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful even in the harder passages that we see your glory, we see your greatness, we see who you are. And God, I pray this day that your word would come alive to us. Would you open our eyes to better understand who you are, to better see your glory and your greatness, and to better understand what belief in you looks like. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, there's one main idea I want you to see from this text this morning. It's simply this. Whoever loves the glory of Jesus does not have to fear death. Whoever loves the glory of Jesus does not have to fear death. See why I said we just basically sung our sermon this morning and all the songs we sang about his glory and him conquering death and it is not death to die. Friends, whoever loves the glory of Jesus does not have to fear death. Now, first of all, what is glory? We use that word a lot. What do I mean by that? Glory literally means honor. It means an excellent reputation. And so when we glorify someone, when we glorify something, we are giving honor to it. We are praising it. We are ascribing greatness to it. And the reality is we all glorify things. We all love to glorify things. And if you don't believe me on that, go to a football stadium in about four weeks, right? You will see people loving to glorify, to honor, to praise, to ascribe greatness to their team and their school. You even hear it in the cheers. Glory, glory, and the stick in your school's name. You probably have heard those before. But if it's not sports, we love to give glory. Listen to the way we talk about celebrities or political figures or people that we, we love to follow. We give glory to those things that we love. Perhaps we give glory to the theme parks or the roller coasters that we like. Maybe I'm the only one guilty of that one. But we, if you listen to me talk about certain parks I've been to and certain roller coasters, it's like you know, I give, I'm giving glory in a sense. I'm giving honor and saying, this is so great. You need to come ride that ride with me. We do it sometimes in our workout approaches, our eating approaches. And unfortunately, we do it too often the way we talk about ourselves. We give glory to something, and we love to give glory to something. But the reality is when we give glory to those things, they're so temporal. They're so undeserving. And if we're honest, they're so unfulfilling as well. When we come to Scripture, Scripture shows us that really everything is about the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God, His greatness, His majesty, His power. It's all about Him. He's the one who deserves honor. He's the one who deserves praise. He's the one who deserves to have us talking about Him with excitement on that because the scripture is about how wonderful and amazing he is the scripture also shows us that god is about seeking his own glory and that can be hard for us because if we seek our own glory it's called pride if we try to glorify ourselves and exalt ourselves it's proud because we're not deserving we're not worthy but for god to seek his own glory is holy and is good because god is majestic god is powerful god is holy god is perfect therefore god should be seeking his own glory And I want you to see this morning in the text that God is about glorifying himself. In particular, in today's text, we see the Father glorifying Jesus, the Son. Look at verse 50. We're going to jump around a good bit this morning, so be willing to do that with me here. Verse 50, Jesus says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. 
There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Here the Father is seeking the glory of God the Son, of Jesus. So the Father loves to see Jesus glorified. Look at verse 54. In verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. God the Father is passionately committed to holding up Jesus' glory before the whole world. And in fact, it said in verse 50, he will judge those who do not glorify the Son. So why is Jesus so worthy of being glorified? We just sang about his glory earlier. Why is Jesus worthy of being glorified so much so? Well, we could spend months of sermons on that and never scratch the surface, okay? But there's several things in this text that highlight how worthy Jesus is of the Father glorifying him and us as his people glorifying him as well. Look at verse 49 for starters. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Why is Jesus worthy of glory? Because he's the one who perfectly honors God the Father. We glorify him. The Father glorifies him because he perfectly honors God the Father. Even as the Father is glorifying Jesus, Jesus is glorifying the Father. And you see the Trinity and the perfect relationship and the unity of God at work there. Look down at verse 55. Jesus says, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him... I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Why do we glorify Jesus? Because he's the one who never lies. He speaks truth and he himself is the truth. We glorify him as well because he's the one who perfectly knows the Father. We glorify him because he's the one who perfectly obeys the Father. Verse 56, another reason we glorify him. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What's all that about? He's telling us that we glorify Jesus because he is the promised Messiah. He is the promised one. What's this about Abraham? Well, there was a promise given to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 where God said, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham understood this to mean that the Messiah would come through his family line. The Messiah would be coming through him. And he believed that and he longed for that. And he foresaw that day through faith that the Messiah would come. And so we glorify Jesus because he is the promised one, the one who is told years and years before, would come and rescue his people from their sins. Therefore, we glorify him. But there's one more reason in this particular text why the Father glorifies the Son and why Jesus is worthy of us glorifying him as well. And that's in verses 57 and 58. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is stunning. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming to be the eternal God who has no beginning and no end. Friend, let let this blow our minds. We did a whole 45-minute teaching on a Wednesday night about this a while back. So you want to stretch your minds more on him being eternal, I encourage you to go find that audio on our Facebook page and listen to it. But Jesus has no beginning and no end. He's always existed. He is outside of time. God in his being does not even have a succession of moments. There was God before there was even time or an idea of time. Jesus is saying before Abraham was even created, I am. I already exist and I always have already existed. He is making a claim of God in this. He's also doing that in the name he's using. He says before Abraham was, I am. Hopefully this gives you flashbacks to Exodus 3 when Moses says, if I go to the people and say, my God has sent me to you, what, and they ask what is his name, what do I tell them? Remember from Exodus 3, God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is claiming the name of God himself in this, both in the tense of I am as well as in the name he's using. And he's making a claim to divinity, and therefore he is worthy of all the glory. He is worthy of us glorifying him in this. And friends, realize this. Standing before the crowd here, 
before a mocking crowd that's shaming him and scorning him is the one who had, which we'll get to in John 17 eventually, who had glory before the world was even created. The one who was totally glorious before there was even time is standing before them and his glory and his majesty there. He's standing before them. And do they understand who he is? Do they bow the knee and confess him? No. Do they love the glory of Jesus? No. Let's look briefly at what they do. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because you know what, from what you've seen over the last four weeks, what this crowd's reaction to Jesus is, but we need to see it here today. Look back in verse 48. The Jews answer him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Friends, they are using the worst possible insult that could be given at the time. The worst insult because the Samaritans were considered outcasts. The Samaritans were considered to be heretics in a lot of ways, and the Jews refused to even talk to them. They're taking the worst idea they could label they could get, and they're sticking it on Jesus. And the top of it off is saying, and furthermore, you're not just a Samaritan, you're a demonic Samaritan. And they're trying to heap on whatever insult, whatever slap in the face they could throw at Jesus. They're not glorifying him. They don't love his glory. They're shaming him. They're mocking him. They're dishonoring him intentionally. And it continues, verse 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Friends, they're saying this to their creator. They're saying this to the one who had glory before time even began. And they say with this mocking question here in verse 52, or see, verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The way it's constructed in the Greek means the answer no is implied. We would kind of say it more today of saying there's no way you're greater than Abraham, are you? It's kind of the idea they're conveying. And they come back with this, who do you make yourself out to be? The you is emphatic. They're like screaming the word you. Who do you make yourself out to be? They're saying this to the glorious one, to their creator. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, are you, you are not 50 years old? And have you seen Abraham? You see their doubt that's filling their heart. And then finally, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Friends, there is no love here for Jesus. There's no belief. There's rather mocking and shaming of him. And all the stuff we see that's so awful here, the mocking, the shaming, the, the, the slurs they're throwing at him, those are just symptoms of a deeper problem. Their worst sin here is their unbelieving heart. Out of their unbelieving heart, everything else flowed. These, these slurs they're throwing at Jesus, their doubt and all that is coming out of this unbelieving heart on this. And God will judge them for not glorifying Jesus. God will judge them for this unbelief. Look at verse 50. Verse 50, Jesus says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Friends, God the Father will judge everyone on whether or not they have glorified the Son. God the Father will judge everyone on this planet of did they love the glory of Jesus? Did they glorify the Son? And this is not just a future sense he will judge. We know that's coming. But it says it's not he will be the judge. It says here in the text he is, present tense, the judge. And we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of John that eternal life begins now and judgment begins now. These people are already under judgment. And likewise, say everyone who doesn't love the glory of Jesus today is already under judgment, and yet we'll see even more judgment in the future. And friends, that is all of us apart from Christ. You probably know the verse in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the what? The glory of God. Think about it. We have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
We all are guilty. We all have done what this crowd is doing. This is not just something happening 2,000 years ago. This is still happening today. The multitudes of people are not giving God the glory. We have all offended his glory. We have all turned from his glory. We've all laughed at his glory apart from his work in our life. Now, friends, if that was the end of the story, that'd be pretty hopeless for us. Because that means all of humanity is going to be judged by God for not loving the glory of the Son. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. There's an invitation here in this text that is absolutely amazing. It's an invitation to love the glory of Jesus and to be set free from this judgment, friends, because whoever loves the glory of Jesus does not have to fear death. And that takes us back to verse 51, which to me is one of the most stunning verses in this text. It is absolutely amazing on this, because remember, what Jesus says here in verse 51, he is saying to people who are trying to stone him, He is saying this to people who have just thrown the worst slur they could throw at him. You're a demonic Samaritan. He's saying this to people who are like mocking him. Are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? In the midst of this people saying this to him, this is what Jesus says to them and what he says to all of us as well because we've all offended his glory as well. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says at the beginning, truly, truly, this in the Greek is amen, amen. This means listen up. This is important. Pay attention here. There is one way to never see death. What does he mean by see death? Well, if you look in verse 52, when the people respond back, they don't quote him exactly right. They say, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Wait, what happened? Jesus said that whoever sees death, and they quote him back, whoever tastes death, and he doesn't correct them. Why? Because in the culture at the time, there was a metaphor. Seeing something and tasting something were two metaphors that meant the same thing. They both meant to experience something. Jesus is saying that if you keep my word, you will never experience death. You will never see it. You'll never taste it. You will never experience death. Well, the people misunderstand that. But look, we all die. Abraham was great and he died. The prophets all died. How can you say this? Well, friends, they're missing the point. When you think of death, there's two aspects to it. In both, in both aspects of death, death is separation. If you think anything about death, realize death is separation. Physical death, which is what they have in their mind and we typically think about, is a separation of the body, and, the body, or the, uh, separation of the body from the soul and the spirit. The soul and the spirit depart from the body. There's a separation that happens. That's physical death. But spiritual death is a separation of the soul and spirit from God forever in a place called hell. There's physical death that's separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. And there's spiritual death, which is a separation of the soul and the spirit from God's presence in, in heaven forever and ever. We saw that last week when we, were working, when we glanced back at Matthew 7, 23, those scary words where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. He's saying, be separated from me for eternity because I never knew you. And so here when Jesus is saying, whoever keeps my word will never see, will never taste, will never experience death, he is speaking of the spiritual death. That's why I appreciate Ashley singing that psalm for us right before the offering. It is not death to die. How does that make sense? How is it not death to die? Because when we face physical death, we don't have to face spiritual death as well. We don't have to experience being found guilty before a holy God in the judgment. We don't have to experience receiving just condemnation that we deserve for our sins. We don't have to experience being separated from God forever in hell. Though we all deserve that, we don't have to experience that because of what Jesus has done. This is where I love this beautiful promise here. Jesus saying, though you deserve spiritual death, you don't have to experience it because of what I've done for you. Hold your finger there and jump ahead to John chapter 11. We'll get to John 11 eventually. 
But John chapter 11, verse 25, I want you to see this in one other place because it helps interpret what we're looking at right now. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus, this is speaking to Mary and Martha around the death of Lazarus. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So you notice that phrase in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Though he die physically, he will not die spiritually. Though he has a physical death, a separation of his soul and his spirit from his body, he will not have a spiritual death where he's separated from God. With that in view, go back to John 8, 51 here. Because I think that helps explain a lot of what we're looking at in verse 51 here. And this is where I love the way Jesus changed the words on this. Because it makes us think about belief. We've said this over and over, but when we hear the word believe, we get so familiar with it, we lose the wonder, and we lose often what it means. I would almost expect in verse 51 it to read this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone believes in me, he will never see death. But that's almost what we expect. That's not what Jesus says. So that's what it, he says in John 11 here. Here in John 8, 51, he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never experience death. What does that mean? How does that help us understand belief? What does it mean to keep his word? Well, ultimately, it is what we talk about with believing. It's hearing, it's accepting, it's understanding it. But understanding what? Understanding Jesus, understanding my word. My is in fact, they're saying whoever keeps my word, not any word, not the God of our imagination, not what we want to do, but keeps his word. And that is, we saw last week, all of Jesus' teaching and all of himself because he is the word himself. And whoever keeps it. Friends, this is what we've been saying week after week after week in John. True belief changes us. True belief makes a difference. It's not just intellectual head knowledge, but it changes us on this. It causes us to love him. It causes us to have fruit and transformation in our lives. We don't keep his word to be, to be changed. We are changed by God, therefore we keep his word. It is the fruit, it is the evidence of him changing us. But friends, this is a very conditional promise. Everyone in the world does not experience, not having, everyone in the world doesn't get to escape experiencing spiritual death. There's a big if here at the beginning of verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word. It doesn't say if anyone raises their hand, prays a certain prayer, walks an aisle, gets baptized, goes through the membership class, joins the church, starts serving and gives a lot of money to the church for all their projects. That person doesn't have to experience spiritual death. That's not the condition Jesus put here. There's one condition and it's not anything I just mentioned. Now those things are inherently bad. Well, the condition here is keeping his word. That is obeying him. That's abiding in him. That is loving the glory of Jesus. That is him so changing us by his grace that we love his glory and that our life is different because of it, that we desire to be in his presence. We desire to obey him. And friends, whoever has that has an amazing promise here. They don't have to fear death. Death is the enemy that so much of the world is, is terrified of. And for those who know they are in Christ, who are so changed by God, not that they join the church, but people who've so been changed by God, they love the glory of Jesus, they can approach death confidently. They can approach death with confidence, knowing that they don't experience a spiritual separation from God. Friends, whoever loves the glory of Jesus does not have to fear death. And friends, that is true for, as it says in verse 51, if anyone, I love that word anyone there, because it doesn't mean what background you have, what your race, ethnicity is. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you had a pretty moral life or a pretty messed up life before that. This is for anyone. It's a promise for anyone. If anyone will keep my word, 
that person doesn't have to experience spiritual death. They get to know Jesus and have their life changed. And so, friends, that brings us two questions to consider as we come to a close this morning. The first of all is the question of what do you glorify the most? What do you glorify? Teenagers, as you were at school this week and your friends were listening to your talk, what did you give the most glory to? College students, as you've been on summer break and you're getting back together and you're talking to your friends, what have you most glorified from your summer? Adults, as we've been at work this week and people here is talking about our summers and what we've been doing, what have we given glory to? If people looked at our life, what are our words glorifying the most? A trip, a thing we love, people, ideas, exercise plans, ourselves. What are our words indicating we glorify the most? What have we been most excited about in the last week? What do our words show? What does our excitement show? But even what have we spent our money on? What have we most glorified? And in that, have we glorified Jesus? If we really are God's children, if we understand that we deserve nothing but hell, nothing but his condemnation because we have offended his glory, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if we understand that and we have been rescued from that and we don't have to fear death, the enemy of the, that most of the world is in fear of, we don't have to fear that, if it's so changed us, how could we not give glory to him for that? If we understand that our creator knows us by name, that he rejoices over us with singing, that he is ever present with us, that it is not death to die. If we understand all these truths, how can we not, with our mouth, with our excitement, with our heart, with our thoughts, glorify him in response? So I believe John 8, the end of John 8, calls us to ask ourselves, what do we glorify and do we love the glory of Jesus? Now the follow-up to that, again, because this morning's main idea is whoever loves the glory of Jesus does not have to fear death. The follow-up question is, do we fear death? Friends, if we do fear death, and there is no love in our heart for the glory of Jesus, that is a well-placed fear. Because if there is no change in our heart, again, I'm not asking about externals, but there's no change in our heart affections towards the things of the Lord, and we're afraid of death, good. Maybe that'll be God's grace to drive us to our knees to repent and believe in him so that we're changed. Friends, if we do love the glory of Jesus, if we really do believe in such a way as we've seen week after week where we receive a radical transformation from above because of what God has done for us, then we can claim, trust his promises and claim it. That we can look death straight in the face, knowing it is not death to die because of what he has done for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for your grace, even as we've worked through many weeks now in John 8 and these difficult passages here. Thank you for just the love this congregation has for your word and their willingness to wrestle with and think through even these tougher texts, the texts that we don't run to to make us feel good, but the texts that are true because they are your inspired word to us that change us. And God, I pray that you would just search our hearts, that you would send your Holy Spirit into each of our hearts, and you would help us see what we most glorify. Father, we all have blind spots. I have blind spots. Each of these precious brothers and sisters have blind spots. There's areas to where, God, we all fall short. But yet we're thankful for your grace that you, did, you didn't save us to leave us in our sins so we could live like we wanted to. You rescued us. You redeemed us that you might change us, that we might better glorify you, that we might better worship you, that we might have the joy that comes from knowing you in a very real, very intimate sort of way. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would search our hearts. And if in our lives we are not glorifying you, that we have not fallen in love with your glory or perhaps we've been distracted by so many other things in this world that call for our praise and our honor and our attention god would you this day by the work of your holy spirit stir our hearts we might fall in love with your glory again 
And God, I pray as we do so, it would spill over this week. God, if we're at school, if we're with friends hanging out, if we're at our jobs, if we're in our homes, God, I pray that our love for the glory of Jesus would spill over in the way we treat one another. It would spill over in the way we point one another to you. It would spill over in our conversation. The thing that excites us more than anything else is your grace, your greatness, your majesty, and knowing you. And God, I pray that as we do that, people around us will take notice, not for our sake, but for yours. The people around us might ask, why do you talk about Jesus? Why do you smile? Why do you have hope? How are you standing strong in the midst of that trial? And God, I pray you would give us wisdom and give us readiness to point people to you this week so they might fall in love with your glory as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning? Want to be close, close to your side.